movie sequels. They're often disappointing, but Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick is a huge winner. It's got a great storyline and there's a lot of actual flying, not just CGI. Today, one of the real naval aviators who worked on the film gives us a behind the scenes look at his responsibilities, his time as a Blue Angel pilot, and lessons he's learned that are applicable for all pilots. It's coming up on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi everyone, I'm Rob Ryder, and welcome to episode 40 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. My guest today is a longtime friend, Commander Frank Weiser, who spent more than 20 years as a naval aviator, with five of those years as a solo pilot with the famed Blue Angels Jet Demonstration Squadron. He shares how he got chosen to fly a Super Hornet in the movie with Tom Cruise in the back seat, what it was like to fly as a solo pilot with the Blues, and how really knowing emergency procedures is critical when things go wrong in the cockpit. It's coming up right after this message from Avemco. Avemco insured their first plane in 1961. Ironically, that same Cessna 172 became Avemco's first claim. That's what started them on a mission to improve pilot safety. They even reward safe pilots with reduced premiums. You'll save 5% just for caring enough about safety to be an I learned about flying from that listener. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 and ask an Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialist how you can save with the Avemco Safety Rewards Program. Now, I learned about flying from that. My guest today on iLaft is a guy that I've known for many, many years, and he and I shared one of the most important experiences of my life, and that was not a wedding for either of us, but in fact was sitting in the back seat of Blue Angel Number no. 5 on February 25th, 2010, when I got my ride in the back seat of the Blue Angel and puked in the jet. But <laughs> that's another story for another time. It's a lesson that I learned about flying from that. <laughs> but Frank Weiser, welcome to iLaft. I laughed. How are you, bud? Thank you. Thank you, Rob. I'm really happy to be here with you. This is a a great time to get you on this program because you have had some experiences as a naval aviator that are unsurpassed, uh, except by a very, very small handful of naval aviators over the years since since the Blue Angels started. But you also, uh, with that experience in mind and having flown very low and very fast, put you in a position to fly around some movie star. And I'm trying to remember that guy's name. Who was that? Was it Glenn Powell? Was that who you're asking about? No, no, it wasn't. No, uh, um, <laughs> that's very funny. <laughs> no, oh, oh, Tom Cruise. Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise, yeah, in, in, in Top Gun Maverick. I'll, I'll start plugging Glenn's next movie, Devotion, soon for him. <laughs> okay, that'll be a good one. Tell me, if you will, how you got approached to become part of that movie. And I know it had something to do with the Blue Angels, but tell me that story, Frank. Sure. After I finished my fifth year on the Blue Angels and had wrapped up lead solo in 2017, the boss at the time, Ryan Bernacki, and I moved over to transition us to the Super Hornet. And so we had a small office at Pensacola where we both lived. 
And we began the process mostly of simulator work and engineering data to begin to figure out how to properly fly the Blue Angel Air Show with the F-18EF instead of the legacy CD. And so in the process of doing that, we spent a lot of time at Pax River, which was our test base, and sorting out what made the Super Hornet different. And this is all very Blue Angel specific stuff. But while we were working there, a, th- a call came in that summer or that fall, and it was essentially the liaison for Top Gun Maverick had had the you know creative out of the box idea that there was a low scene that needed to be filmed, and they had, there had been some pushback that it was lower than we were willing to let Navy pilots fly. And this is Ferg Ferguson, who's the liaison for the movie. He had the idea to at least call the Blue Angels and ask if that was even a possibility, and if anybody was Super Hornet qualified and that sort of thing. So. We know I were in the room. I had just finished being lead solo. And one of our maneuvers for the air show that number five flies every day is the sneak pass. And it comes in from left to right at a low altitude. And so um, as we discussed it and talked about the mitigation, it became pretty apparent that that's something that was in my uh, aviation skill set. And that sort of morphed into just from being one low pass to being a low transition takeoff, which the solo pilots also do. And then some inverted flying, which the solo pilots also do, and and on and on. So that was originally how uh, I had received the call. And that was, I'm thinking, summer of 18. And then you went to California. Where did you film that? And how long were you working on the film? And what about your time with Cruise? Sure. So we the first discussion was just around what they refer to as the Lawrence of Arabia Pass. But the pass that you see about halfway through the movie where the jet's at low altitude uh, over the desert. That was filmed in Bravo 20 over the salt flats just outside of, and we took off from NAS Fallon, um, which is near Reno, Nevada. But prior to that even happening, uh, we filmed the funeral flyover scene. That was me in a variety of, or in one legacy Blue Angel airplane flying over and over on Point Loma. And then I think in February of that same year, I went out to China Lake, which is Ridgecrest, California, close to Death Valley, and filmed that low transition takeoff. And then the one that you're talking about, the low pass over the desert was, my memory serves me, I think it was probably April or May timeframe that we filmed it initially with just me. And then I went out to fly with Tom for another week um, to have him in the backseat for uh, essentially that run and then some a variety of other canyon runs and that sort of thing. And when you were doing that, he was, you were pulling G's, you up to what, seven G's? You were really, you were ringing it out for yourself and for him. I, yeah, I was, we were, uh, and I will say, I've said this on a couple other interviews about Tom, he's really strong in the jet. And so the nice thing about flying with someone who is as comfortable in the airplane and as strong in the airplane is that the only limitation is what the airplane limits you to, meaning that I'm not limited by either myself as the pilot or him as the passenger. We can do anything the aircraft lets us to. So there really is no limit to what we are able to film for the movie. And it made it a lot better for me as the pilot and um, and just the scenes we were setting up for and getting it exactly the way he wanted. And the takeaway I had from him is it, it couldn't be aggressive enough, you know, to, and now having seen the movie, you can see why he wanted it the way he did. Of course, I didn't know anything about the storyline at the time or even understand what the scenes we were filming. And now in retrospect, it makes perfect sense uh, having put it all together, but he was um, really, really intent on getting as low as we could and being as aggressive as possible. And he did great the whole time. Never got sick a lick, huh? No, not once, not once. And I had flown with a few of the other actors and and some of the other Top Gun instructors were out there with me when we were filming and going through some of those canyons. And um, it's really easy to get sick. Uh, and so it's remarkable that he didn't actually. If you picture yourself in the backseat of an F-18, you have pretty limited forward visibility anyway. 
and then to do it where the whole back of it is just covered in cameras. So your forward visibility is just a narrow sliver on the left and right. And to be able to see nothing forward and not get sick is really something. He was a great guy to work with, you told me. He was. Yeah, he was easy to talk to. They all were. They all were. It was really a pleasure to be around the whole environment. And I tell you, the behind the scenes folks, the ones that work on the producers, the assistant producers, the assistant directors, the director himself, the facilities manager, the guys were just awesome. I mean, to a person they were. And they were fun to, to be involved with. They were professional. They worked hard. And they were also easy to talk to afterwards. And it broke down a lot of my Hollywood stereotypes because it was just such a great group of people across the board. I'm sure they felt the same way about you and all the other pilots who were there. You guys are the real deal, though. When you went in for makeup, did I hear somebody tell me that uh, you were asked, who are you doubling for today or who are you standing in for today? Was this, is there any truth to that story? Yeah, I mentioned that on um, on Ryan's podcast for the Blue Angel Phantoms. And I, I said, it, I wasn't in a bad mood. I think it just caught me off guard. That, And she was quite pleasant and said, who are you doubling as today? And I just said, I, I think you might have misunderstood. I'm not doubling as anybody. Um, in fact, they're pretending to be us. <laughs> and then someone shared with me a comment that was made on the, the other podcast that um, when I explained that. And uh, there was a very interesting comment. I don't know if it was true or not, but it was about a Charleston Heston movie. And um, someone asked, you know, was he enamored or was he impressed to be around Charlton Heston? Because he had been the pilot for um, filming one of those aviation movies he had done. And he said, well, no, he's pretending to be me. He's playing He's playing me. And so, I, I you know, without phrasing it that intelligently, I, that was sort of my sentiment was that um, in this particular case, we weren't doubling. We were actually doing what they were pretending to do. Now, I'm quite sure these are very talented people. So had they chosen naval aviation as their um, chosen career field, I'm sure they would have excelled too, just like they've excelled in acting. So um, that's not to take away from anything they did. I just caught, I, I found that remark to be, um, it just caught me off guard. Well, irrespective of, of that person's thoughts of who was doubling who, you know, from the makeup person's standpoint, that makes sense because at one point you had to have some extra hair put on the back of your head, right? I did. I know they did that for all the Navy pilots that had the privilege to fly with Tom. They would um, essentially glue Tom's hairline onto the back of our heads. And that just allowed us to resemble him more accurately from the back for the over-the-shoulder camera shots. As you looked at the entire movie, did it live up to any expectations that you had thought up ahead of time? Was it was it as good a movie as you'd hoped it would be? Because a lot of us thought it was just a tremendous movie in all aspects. Yeah, Rob, I think it far surpassed what I had anticipated. Um, I deliberately didn't ask about any of the storyline, any of the scenes. It wasn't my business. I was just there to fly airplanes. But um, I thought the storyline was great. It kept me engaged the whole time. I was even having flown some of the scenes, I was kind of surprised to see how they used it. And I've now seen it a handful of times with my family and various friends. And I um, like they say about good movies, you know, the best movies are ones that every time you watch it, you like it more than before and you pick up things that you didn't see. I've always said that about the Blue Angel Air Show. I think for our most um, involved fans they can see the show a lot of different times and they can watch it from different angles and every time they see it it's better than it was before so i feel like the top gun maverick is that way um, i was really pleased with the movie overall 
so exciting to be able to have seen your name go by in the credits in the two times that I've seen it. As you know, I sent you that one picture. I was waiting for it, and Jill took a picture of me pointing right at your name as it was going by. You have to wait a long time. Hang tight. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting to see that you all were after craft services in the uh, credits, but that's okay. It's another story. But Frank, let me, let's go back to the Blue Angels and your time as a naval aviator, because this is the I learned about flying from that podcast. And there are some things that have happened to you that you had to call upon uh, emergency procedures and you had to live through some some things that weren't supposed to happen. And one of those, as I recall, involved uh, an engine failure during uh, one of the solo maneuvers that you do, the minimum radius turn. Can you set us up for that and how that worked in the program with the Blue Angel sequence and what happened to you on that? Sure. And uh, I'll definitely do that. And before I even say that, I'd say I've lost so many engines on my time on the Blue Angels. It's hard to count them all up. I, I certainly couldn't count them all. I'd have to go through a logbook because I usually make a note of it. Um, in the particular case you're asking me about, we have a maneuver called the, the minimum radius turn, and it's an intent for the lead solo to demonstrate just how tight of a turn radius the F-18 can execute. And we do that fairly early on in the show, maybe about a third of the way through, give or take. And number five sets up from left to right and ingresses, depending on the show site and what time of the year it is, around 100 feet. And airspeeds generally 350 to 400 knots, depending on the conditions. And it's a full afterburner, essentially max performance pull. Now, you could... Um, have probably a tighter turn radius and be at a higher angle of attack, but there's a bit of a compromise there. So we generally turn at about 13 units alpha because what that does for us on the out is we found this with both the legacy Hornet and the super Hornet is the Hornet has a really incredible capability to do a pirouette and it's mostly used for air to air dogfighting. But we found a way in 2010 when I was lead soul the first time to incorporate it in the air show because of some new software updates. And what it allowed us to do was have this rapid, um, turn where you can come around with your basically belly to the crowd and then have the aircraft just go nose high in a split second. And so we've incorporated that. And to do that properly, you really need to be at a higher angle of attack, somewhere around you know 13 to 25. So it, it, it works well to do it that way. And as I executed that pirouette in that particular show, which you were at in, in Miramar near San Diego, is it snuffed the right motor out. And you know, when I watched it from the crowd's perspective on our normal video cameras, my, the crew at Comcart, who we work with so well, and those guys are the experts of the air show, if you've ever, if there's ever been one, they knew right away because they've seen the show and they watch everything. And for me, of course I knew it, but I knew it because I felt the loss of thrust right away. And that's just the normal pilot see the pants feel. I think if you hadn't seen the show, many times you might not have even known what in fact happened to me was the fact that the aircraft, instead of going straight nose high like it normally would, it sort of rolled into that failed engine because it had lost that thrust. So I felt it sort of yaw to the right side as I was nose high. The emergency procedures for that are just like our slow speed pass where you just have to dump the nose. And the reason you do it is because you want to kill any of that angle of attack you have. You want to get to a point where you can look out and see the horizon as fast as possible. And so that's all I did. That's pretty... Um, basic from our perspective is you just know that if you feel loss of thrust, just get the nose level. You certainly don't want to be in a uh, nose high attitude or a climbing attitude. That's going to make it even harder to get away. So dump the nose, get uh, looking over the horizon and just take whatever energy you have and the thrust you have remaining to start a gentle climb away to make sure you're safely away from the crowd and all the other obstacles. So in that case, that's exactly what I'd done. I had worked on that maneuver for a long time with the engineers at our test base and then 
doing all the hundreds and hundreds of practices and sorties we had. Um, and I was confident that even if you lost an engine at the worst time, that it would still climb away. When it actually happened at the worst time, of course, I'm saying to myself, boy, I hope I was right. And um, and it climbed away fine, but it was certainly an uncomfortable feeling. Uh, and it, it did like it was supposed to. The, the, the Hornet's a phenomenal airplane. Um, and I've lost an, a, an engine also on the slow speed pass at the worst time, just flying through a flock of seagulls off the coast of Milwaukee. And um, it's the same thing. You dump the nose, you get all the uh, power and energy you can, and then you in that case, you know, look to land right away. There's no reason at that point, especially if you fly through a flock of birds, you don't know what damage there is to your operation operating motor, and you might end up losing that one too. So um, I felt like that particular day, it was going through what I would have estimated it was like to fly through flak, and I've never flown through flak, but it was just this thunk, 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 and hitting the airplane with all those birds. Um, so that was, in both cases, anytime you lose an engine, it's uh, uncomfortable, you, we get really good at responding to it. And then moreover, the Hornet flies fine on one engine and the engines are close enough that you don't feel a, a, a big yawing moment that it applies like it would in a light piston twin or something like that. Um, and so the airplane fly, flies fine. I often, I say, I joke, but I don't really joke. I'm serious when I say I'd rather lose an engine than my heads up display. Because for those of us that have flown the Hornet for a long time, you get so reliant on your HUD. The idea of looking down for your, your pilot and your flight information is quite a different scan. And so I'd much rather just have a little bit less thrust to land with than not have my normal um, heads-up display. Very interesting uh, comparison in that when I was doing the sneak pass with you uh, out in El Centro back in 2010, we were on the way in for that, and I heard you calling the Mach numbers as you were accelerating and how far you were from center point. And I, the last time I looked down, it said, I think it said 650 knots. And I said, if I don't look up, I'm not going to see this pass. It's going to be gone in a heartbeat. And I looked up and Comcart disappeared to my right. And then I was crushed down into my seat with about five Gs, I think, on that pull, <laughs> which was uncomfortable. Yeah, that's right. No, that's a, that's such a fun maneuver. And you're right, you're doing 650 El Centro, especially because it's low DA out there and it's usually in the wintertime, so it's cold, so the aircraft flies really well. It, it certainly can perform there. And um, yeah, you will you can see that speed. And so you're talking in the 700s of miles an hour. And so, boy, you're going, you know, I don't know, what the, what's that math there? You're going a mile every couple sec every two or three seconds, probably. It, it goes by quick, that's for sure. It does indeed. These engine failures that you have had, and you say that these are not uh, uncommon, uh, that you've had a bunch. Um, when that happens, you're out of the show for for the rest of the show, I would assume, or do you jump to a spare sometimes? Yeah, great question, Rob. So j yes, you're out. You will not continue to fly the air show with the other members with a degraded airplane ever. There's almost no degradation that we'd be willing to continue flying. It's just the nature of the show, and it's there's no um, there's no one getting shot at on the ground. There's no one we're defending. You're, you can't justify anything that we might justify in combat. So you land, and generally speaking, you have a spare. We take the seventh jet that the narrator flies there, and we use that as our spare. And so, in the case that you had a single engine issue or or any variety of other aircraft malfunctions. You would just sequence yourself in. It, in a case like happened in Milwaukee, and I don't think in Miramar actually, I called a knock it off, which basically means everybody else has to stop. But I did that because I was over the water. I wanted to be able to turn directly to the airport and land because my fear was that the other engine had had failed as well. And I wanted to not be in anybody, have anyone in my way. Generally speaking, if you have an aircraft degradation, then 
you let the show go on and you go behind the crowd. You taught, you troubleshoot through your checklist with the people on the ground who keeps out of you. You um, easily deconflict from everybody else who's still flying all the other, the other five pilots. And then when it, you're able, you sequence yourself into land, usually trailing one maneuver in. And in some cases, the crowd might never know that you've even landed, depending on where the spare jet is. And you shut the jet down, hop in the spare. We have it down to a science on the Blue Angels so we can get in and out of our airplane, into the spare, start it up and airborne. Literally in minutes, two or three minutes is not, not an absurdly fast turn time for a spare. And then you're airborne and you can jump right back in with the only uh, change to our show being that you're heavier. And because you've now taken off an aircraft that's fully fueled. And so there are certain maneuvers that you're very used to the way the aircraft feels, having burned 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 pounds of gas. And now it feels a little different on the controls. For sure, in our high or our slow speed pass, rather, if we have too much of a fuel split, we won't do that maneuver together. Uh, we will say only one aircraft will fly that with the higher, uh, because of the fuel split between the two airplanes and what will eventually manifest itself into an angle of attack difference. Um, but yeah, that's exactly how we do it. Um, and ideally, if we do it just right, it's um, totally transparent. Let's take a break at this time, Frank. I want to come back and talk about some of these incidents and the lessons that you've learned and the procedures by which you anticipate the lessons that might be learned based on the Blue Angels experience. We'll be right back. There's only one aircraft insurance company that invites you to call them and actually discuss your situation with an aviation insurance specialist. That company is Avemco. What kind of flying do you do? What if you don't fly all winter? Why is it just as bad to have too much insurance as too little? Is there a penalty just for being an older pilot? Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Either way, tell them you're an I Learned About Flying from that listener and you'll save an additional 5%. Now, back to I Laughed. We're back with Frank Walleye Weiser, former Blue Angel 765 and 65, twice on the team. Uh, before we get into this final segment, Frank, tell me about your getting brought back onto the team because usually for a 765, it's a narrator, then opposing solo, then lead solo, then you're out and gone and you never come back. But you came back. What happened? Well, I came back only because Jeff Coos passed away on takeoff in the Smyrna show on June 2nd, 2016. So a really sad occasion to return to the Blue Angels. Um, I very much felt like that was his tour that I was flying. And so for those that year and a half that I filled in, it was anything I could do to honor Jeff and, and his time on the team and the legacy he left. Seems to be pretty true of the people I know in aviation who I've really cared about and loved that like they like the saying goes only the good die young and uh, you won't find a guy who has known jeff who has anything but incredible things to say about him and and just a a gifted human being and um an incredible man so it's never easy to fill in for someone like that they're to say they're big shoes to fill is an understatement um and so you just do the best you can to um live up to their expectations and what they how what they would have accomplished in that position so I moved back in um, summer and very end of June in 2016. I, uh, our family was in South Germany at the time. I was working for NATO. And um, we had a small spin up or spool up spin up process for me where I had to go get refreshed in the F-18 and then come back and do the Blue Angel thing again and try to figure out if I can still fly air shows. And it's actually a testament to what we do on the Blue Angels that 
um, it didn't take very long at all because the muscle memory is there and to have flown it for two or three years before and then just to hop right back in is uh, is pretty easy. It was surprisingly easy in my estimation. I, I anticipate it being a lot harder. There were some small changes that had been taken place in my absence that I felt like I had to kind of work through. But um, I filled in for the second half of 2016 as the uh, opposing solo and then as the lead solo in 2017. Yeah, Cooch was a good guy. He was one of the one of my well one one of my narrator students since I've been working with the team since as the narrator coach since 2011, I believe. You're the guy that brought me in on that, and I thank you for it because it has just taught me some lessons about flying from that. Let's talk now about the lessons that you learned specifically with your Blue Angel flying and the loss of engines and how you anticipate as a team the almost any possibility of a mishap. You guys learn lessons about that ahead of time, don't you? Yeah. Uh, and Rob, so I'll answer that in two parts. We, we do learn lessons ahead of time. You, you are uh, every Navy pilot, every military pilot, I'm sure, spends a lot of time going over former mishaps. We have a read and initial um, binder when we check into a new squadron where you find out it. every previous mishap that might apply in any way. You read through and then initial that you've read it and understand what you were supposed to take away from it. So that's very normal. The um, the other thing is that it, I, I suspect any pilot, but certainly military pilots, it gets absolutely drilled into what your emergency procedures are. And we get tests on it regularly. We, get, we talk about them in the briefs. We talk about them in the airplane. So your EPs are absolutely first and foremost. And it's not that our Navy airplanes are, are breaking more. I mean, we, we fly them hard, so we anticipate things not being perfect all the time. But it really is important that you understand what to do when things go wrong. And the reason I, I say that is because very recently, I forget what airport I was at, but I was flying and, and someone I was with who wasn't a pilot made a comment like they pointed to a different airplane. So, well, could you fly that? And I said, I'm sure I could. I mean, I can take off and land that airplane. There's, you know, if you have time and everything from little bitty tail draggers up through heavy aircraft, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to fly any airplane. But I said, I wouldn't because I don't know that aircraft. And it would take me a month to sit through classes of the systems and how the airplane works and then to get in the simulator. And I said, it's not about flying the airplane. For the people who don't fly regularly, taking off and landing and going from point A to point B should be about as easy as it gets. But it's knowing what to do when things go wrong. And so I was with someone a few years ago who made a comment and the comment was, well, that guy is an incredible pilot. He just makes really bad decisions. And I said, then I'm probably disagree with you. I think he probably is a terrible pilot, actually, because being a great pilot is all about your decision making. And it's also all about being prepared for when things go wrong. Anybody can fly an airplane, but you really want to be with someone who's a professional pilot who knows what to do when things start to go wrong, whether that's the weather, whether that's the aircraft, whether that's the pilot, who knows, any of those things can go wrong and then lead to some kind of negative situation when you're airborne. And the old adage is true that you all, it's always better to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than in the air wishing you were on the ground. And one of the ways to prevent the latter is by always being prepared and by knowing your emergency procedures and knowing your systems so that you can become both a pilot and a bit of a maintainer slash engineer in the airplane to figure out how to safely recover your airplane. So for us, whether it's Navy flying or Blue Angel flying, first, you know the airplane. Second, you know your EPs. And then third, you know what to do when that EP happens in flight. And so to your question, what do we do on the Blue Angels? First and foremost, you safely separate from the other airplanes. It doesn't matter whether you lose an engine, hit a bird, 
have a flight control malfunction, if you're in close proximity to other airplanes, you first and foremost get away from them because it's no, you could take one small emergency and compound it really fast by overreacting or doing the wrong thing, trying to dump your nose, like I mentioned earlier, when there's an aircraft right below you. So you have to know your surroundings. You have to have good situational awareness. And then you can look and say, all right, I know I'm clear of everyone. What do I do now? How do I troubleshoot this? The EP should be easy. I go through what we'd call our bold face. I go through the memory items right away in order. There's also a comment that we hear a lot, no fast hands in the cockpit. So before you shut down an engine, just like you would in a big aircraft, you, you guard the switch you don't want to shut off. You know, you make sure you're dead foot, dead engine kind of thing. And you know that you have um, your hand on the right switch before you do something that could lead to an even worse situation. So you go through your bold face and then once you're ready, you tell someone on the ground and say, I'm ready to start troubleshooting with you. Let's go through. You read it, I'll respond. And if you're a normal F-18 pilot flying out of a normal squadron or off an aircraft carrier, there's someone dedicated to do that with you. On the Blue Angels, we have our personnel at Comcart who have the, our, the book, the NATOPS binder and our pocket checklist right there. And we'll read through the whole procedure and make sure we're all on the same page and then what the right way is to recover that airplane. So d does that answer the question? Frank, you answered it in a way that I hadn't anticipated. That is great stuff. We could continue to talk, but you've reinforced things that every pilot needs to know, whatever level, student, single engine land, multi, and even professional pilot. It's not knowing how to fly the plane when things are going right, but how to handle things when they're not going right. Thanks for sharing with us, Frank, and I really enjoyed having you on iLaft. Thank you, Rob. I've enjoyed it too. Frank Weiser has been interviewed on major network TV programs and did an extended interview with honorary Blue Angel Ryan Notoft on his Blue Angels Phantoms podcast. You may want to check it out. As we complete episode 40, I'm so very gratified to all of you who've been listening and learning from my guests. And if you have an I Laughed story that you'd like to share, send it to me at rob at flying.media. That's rob at flying.media. You can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes every couple of weeks so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of iLaft, and Julie Boatman is the editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That. <laughs>